The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Well, this morning, I just want to take a little bit of time and look at a prophecy in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet who lived, oh, what was it, 700 years before the coming of Christ. He is sometimes known as the premier prophet because his uh, book is, is the longest book in, in the Old Testament in regard to prophecy. It's 66 chapters long. Isaiah lived during the time in which Israel was uh, sent into captivity. In fact, uh, in Isaiah chapter 7, we heard it quoted in Matthew 1, but if you want to turn over to Isaiah, it's in, pretty much in the middle of your Bibles. Isaiah chapter 7, the Matthew account there quotes this prophecy of Jesus. It's 700 years before He comes. And just to give you a little bit of background about this verse, I'll go ahead and read it. Isaiah 7 verse 14. The Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, when Isaiah gave this prophecy, what was going on was just a a quick overview of world history. Adam and Eve were created in the garden, and they sinned and fell. And God promised Eve that one of her children would restore everything that was lost in the garden. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in fact, this child who was going to be a descendant would crush the head of the serpent who had Uh, seduced them and and tempted them and lied to them and he would restore everything well as time progressed and God took Adam's descendants through the line of Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and then he took the family of Jacob and Israel and turned them into a nation and brought them out of Egypt in the exodus if you've seen the ten commandments the old or the new whether you're a Charlton Heston fan or whoever did the newer part um You have the story of Israel coming out of Egypt, being delivered by God to go to the promised land. Of course, in their sin, they rebelled for 40 years and they wandered in the wilderness, but they eventually come into the promised land under the leadership of um, Joshua. And then what happens is, for a period of time, there are these judges who are raised up to, to save the people of Israel. But then the people of Israel, they cried out they wanted a king. God, in fact, said it wasn't good that they wanted a king because He was their king. But he, he conceded to their wishes. He gave them a king. And first there was King Saul who rebelled against the Lord. And then God established King David, a man after his own heart. This is a thousand years before the coming of Christ. So about a thousand B.C. And King David was given a promise in 2 Samuel 7 God, through the prophet Nathan, promised David that he would have a descendant, this same one who was promised, who would reign on the throne forever. This descendant of David would come and he would restore everything that was lost. Well, fast forward 300 years, and David, after David's son Solomon reigned, the the nation was split into two. There was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And so so this promise is under threat. How is David going to have a son who's going to rule forever? Well, by the time of King Ahaz, which is in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1, it came about in the days of Ahaz, 
the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah. So Ahaz was this king in the southern kingdom in Judah. And what had happened was the northern king and the king of Persia had joined together and they were going to attack Judah. And so King Ahaz, he looks around and he says, what am I going to do? We're going to get crushed. And he looks to his neighbor, Assyria, and he says, they're the biggest military force in the area. I'm going to make an alliance with them. But Isaiah the prophet comes to Ahaz and he says, no, you shouldn't make an alliance with Assyria. In fact, God had told you not to make an alliance with any of the nations around you because they will lead you astray. They will betray you. They will stab you in the back. And so God gives a promise to Ahaz here in verse 14 and He says, I'm going to give you a sign. I'm going to give you a sign that basically says if I have to bring this son through the birth of a virgin, I'll do so. Through a miracle, I'll do it. This one who's going to deliver. This one who's going to reign forever. This one who's going to restore everything that was lost. Well, Ahaz was a wicked man. He didn't love the Lord. And even though God had promised David one of his sons would sit forever, Ahaz wasn't the one to fulfill that promise. He was a descendant of David, but he wasn't a righteous man. And so he goes ahead and he forms this alliance with Israel, with Assyria rather. And what ends up happening, someone said this whole episode is like a mouse being attacked by two rats, and he squeaks for the cat to save him. And the cat did, but the mouse ended up as dessert. And that's what happened in the history of Israel, in the history of Judah. Assyria saved Judah from the northern kingdom and from Persia, but they end up being conquered later by Babylon and taken into captivity. And this isn't the passage I wanted to to turn to this morning, but I wanted to give you the background of this promise that this virgin would conceive and bear a son, and they'll call his name Emmanuel. This is in the context of Israel's hopes. All of the people of Israel knew this promise that one of David's sons was going to reign forever. He was going to rule forever. They knew this promise. And so every time a king was raised up in the line of David, they thought, could he be the one? Maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he's the one who's going to rule forever and reign forever. And for 500 years, they were disappointed in their kings. And so God, through Isaiah, He makes another promise about this son. And this is the one I want to turn over to Isaiah 9, just two chapters over. I want to look at this. Actually, I'm going to begin in verse 1. We're just going to look at verses 6 and 7 this morning, but verse 1, you can see how this is fulfilled in Jesus. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, He shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness, and they'll be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest." As men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. This is why. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. 
and the government will rest on His shoulders. And His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of the hosts will accomplish this. He says there's coming a day when Israel won't be in anguish anymore and their conquerors won't tread them down anymore because their king is going to come. This son is going to be born. And the government's going to be upon his shoulders. And his reign will be forever. Oppression will cease. Wars will cease. He is called the Prince of Peace. None of these descendants of David up to the time of Isaiah were this one who brought peace. None of them fulfilled this. This one who's coming, God says, and and He says in verse 7, He's going to accomplish it. The Lord of hosts. The Lord of the angel hosts of heaven. The commander of the Lord's army of angels. He will accomplish this. And so this morning... Here in Isaiah 9, we see another promise of this son of David. And Isaiah, in this passage, where he draws attention to the, 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 the climax of this passage is in verse 6. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so this morning, I just want to look at four characteristics of this king's name. Ray Ortland Jr., who has written a commentary on this, he's a pastor of Emmanuel Church back in Florida. He says, look at Jesus. As the wonderful counselor, He has the best ideas and strategies. As the mighty God, He defeats His enemies easily. Let's hide behind Him. As the everlasting Father, He loves us endlessly. Let's enjoy Him. As the Prince of Peace, He reconciles us. While we are still His enemies, let's welcome His dominion, His reign. So He's the Wonderful Counselor. And this is a a great phrase in the Hebrew. It means He is a wonder of a counselor. It's the closest word, this word wonder or wonderful, it's the closest word you can get to to a miracle in, in the Hebrew. It's this idea of something that is supernatural. It's something that causes your jaw to drop. He's a wonder of a counselor. He's got wisdom and counsel and understanding. And when you hear Him speak, it is amazing. And I don't use that word like as the slang of our day. It should cause us to stand in awe and be amazed silent. This is who He is. In fact, in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, Paul calls Jesus the wisdom from God. He's wisdom from God. In Colossians 2.3, Paul writes, in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you want to have wisdom, if you want to see where ultimate knowledge and, and, and sound wisdom is, you need to look to Jesus. You need to hear Him speak. You need to hear His words. In fact, Isaiah 53, in that famous passage that speaks of him being a suffering servant, over in Isaiah 53, if you want to turn there, verse 1, who's believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. This is Isaiah speaking 700 years before Jesus came. And he's speaking of Jesus. And on, when Jesus lived on this earth, this is exactly how he was treated. He had no reputation. As we saw this morning in saying he was born in Bethlehem. He was born in a manger. He was born not in the center of the world in Rome at that time. He was born in the outskirts of Bethlehem. He was despised and forsaken of men, verse 3. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Are you full of grief this morning? Jesus knows how to be a wonderful counselor because He was acquainted with grief. See, as Christians, we don't just paste a smile on our face and say that everything's okay when it's not. We know that this world has fallen and life is hard and there is sin and sorrow and sadness and death. But we also know in Christ we have a hope that this world's not our home and He's going to make everything right. And He knows He's well acquainted with our griefs. He's well acquainted. He has been tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. In fact, verse 4 says, Surely our griefs He Himself bore and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. We thought He was a curse. He hung on a cross. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging we're healed. He didn't die for His own sin because He was sinless. He died for our sins. And each of us like sheep have gone astray. We've turned it to His own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He didn't open His mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that's silent before its shearers, He didn't open His mouth. By oppression and judgment He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men. He had two thieves on a cross next to him, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence. Joseph of Arimathea, who was a rich man, buried him in a rich man's tomb. Nor was there any deceit in his mouth, but the Lord was pleased to crush him putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he would see his offspring, he would prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord would prosper in his hand. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. How does he do it? By his knowledge, it says here in verse 11. He's a wonder of a counselor. The one who's full of wisdom and knowledge. And here, it's by His knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many and bear their iniquities. This is plan of salvation, of Jesus dying in our place, is the wisdom of God seen in Christ. It's the best plan that could ever be conceived. 
In fact, man could never come up with it, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Greeks, who were the wise, philosophical people of the day, it was foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God and it's the wisdom of God. Jesus is a wonder of a counselor. He knows exactly what's needed to save sinners. He knows exactly what's needed. Jeremiah 23.5, another prophet who lived around the same time as Isaiah said, Behold, the days are coming, coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Wouldn't it be nice to have leaders who rule wisely? That's what we long for. One of the things we long for is that our leaders would have wisdom. I hope you pray for our leaders that they would have wisdom. That they would rule wisely. Well, there is one who rules in perfect wisdom from heaven. Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who is a wonder of a counselor. He's going to lead His kingdom and His people in wisdom, and His wisdom is wonderful. I can tell you this is true in my own life. When I follow my own wisdom, when I listen to the advice of my friends rather than what the Word of God says, I've had regrets. Maybe big ones, maybe small ones, but I always seem to have regrets. But when I listen to the wisdom of the Word of God, the wisdom of Christ, I never have any regrets. Not once. I don't say, man, I wish I wouldn't have listened to Jesus. I wish I wouldn't have done what He said. You know, like when you worry about tomorrow, and He says, who by worrying can add a single day to your life? Look at the birds of the air. They don't toil. They don't labor. God feeds them. He'll feed you too. Look at the flowers of the field. God clothes them in splendor. And He'll clothe you. So don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough problems of its own. I have never thought, man, I really regret listening to Jesus and not worrying about tomorrow. It's a wise solution to the problem of worry. Today has enough problems of its own, doesn't it? He's a wonder of a counselor. This is how He is as a ruler. All of these are in the context of Him as King. Second, He's mighty God. Isaiah 9.6 says, He is. His name shall be called Mighty God. It doesn't say He'll be like a mighty God. It doesn't say He'll be a God-like hero. It doesn't say it's almost as if God was in our midst. He says He is Mighty God. El Gabor. He is a mighty warrior in our midst. See, here is a ruler who is powerful and able to do everything that needs to be done to rule us and lead us. He's God Almighty. The picture of Yahweh in the Psalms, in fact. When you read the Psalms and you read about Yahweh, God as a warrior, it's never as old grandpa on the hill with a long beard. It's always as a young warrior mighty in battle who is strong to save. He's a tower. He's a fortress. He's a refuge. He's our shield and our strength. He's our deliverer. He's our conqueror. He's a warrior. In the prime of His youth is the picture in the Psalms. And here Jesus comes. John 1.1 The Word was with God and the Word was God. And He became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. 
He's God Almighty incarnate. Fully God and fully man. In fact, Romans 9.5, Paul says, He is Christ according to the flesh who is God over all forever blessed. Hebrews 1.8, Of the Son, God the Father says, Your throne, O God, of the Son, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of Your kingdom. The point is, This Messiah is not merely a man uniquely indwelt with the Spirit of God. He's not just a superman or a demigod. He is God in the flesh. He's not just merely a man who shares the moral qualities of God. He's not merely a man uniquely used by God in the world in a a unique way like no other one has before. He is God and man. Divine nature, human nature in one person the true and living God in the flesh. This is who He is. El Gabor, mighty God. And we should get behind Him so He could protect us. And He knows how to protect us and defend us and deliver us. And He will deliver us. Third, He's everlasting Father. The Father of the ages, literally in the Hebrew, He's the everlasting Father in the sense that He's the ruler of His people. Here, this passage in Isaiah 9-6 is not confusing God the Son with God the Father. This isn't some sort of modalism where sometimes God appears as Father, sometimes as Son, sometimes as Spirit. No, we believe the Scripture teaches a trinity, three persons who exist as God, fully partaking of the divine nature. One God in three persons. A mystery. Can't completely understand it, but Scripture declares it. And here, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, is called the Father of the Ages. This means, in the context, I think, according to verse 7, if you're still in Isaiah 53, turn back to Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. His name is called Eternal Father. And verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of His government. And His throne will be forevermore from then on and forevermore it will exist and so in the context of eternal father the father of eternity the father of the ages what he's talking about is that he will rule and reign over his people forever kings were called fathers in fact later in isaiah that word is used of the jewish king as a father to his people And here, as a metaphor, Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, is called the Eternal Father, the Father of the ages, the One who's going to rule and reign forevermore as every age rolls on in eternity future. Jesus is going to be ruling and reigning. He rules as a Father. And His reign will know no end. Verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of His government or of peace. His government won't be on a decline. It won't be like the fall of the Roman Empire or the British Empire or the Spanish Empire or the American Empire. Of His government, there will be no end to its increase. And it's going to be characterized by peace. And of the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. What a thought. Think about how tired Israel would have been already waiting for the fulfillment of this promise. They would have been tired at this point already looking at their kings who were evil 
who did not reign in righteousness, who did not reign in peace, who took advantage of their people, who overtaxed them and abused them. And by the time of Jesus, 700 years later, as Israel is under the hand of Rome and the line of Judah is living in obscurity, you see, Mary was a descendant of Judah, of David. And she had to go to Bethlehem for the census. And Bethlehem was a little village. They're not the reigning kings anymore of Israel. They're in obscurity. They would have been tired. The northern kingdom had gone through how many kings and how many capitals? And the southern kingdom had lost their independence. And for 500, 700 years, the people of God would wait for a ruler. And God says when He comes, His rule is never going to end. It's going to be stable. It's going to be forever. He's going to be an eternal king. The endless monarch of His people. That's what the New Testament says. He's currently sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning, until all of His enemies are placed under His feet. And the last enemy is death. And He's going to rule and reign forever. In fact, at the right hand of the Father, there's one man. There's only one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. Fully God and fully man. And He's coming back to get us. And He's going to make this world right. And we're going to live with Him forever. In fact, Scripture says in Ephesians, we've been seated in the heavenlies with Him and we're going to rule and reign forever with Him. There's going to be a great reversal. In fact, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, Jesus said, be a servant of all. That's greatness in His kingdom. And so if your life is given over in service to others and you're never known for anything other than being a servant, you're the greatest of all in the kingdom of God. He's the Father of the ages and He will rule and reign forever. And He's the Prince of Peace. That is, He is the one who brings peace. Because He is peace. He gives peace, He reigns in peace, and He is our peace. Turn over to, to Micah. Um, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Well, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. I don't know if that helps you. Might have to look in the front. Page 939 in Frank's Bible. <laughs> Micah 5. This is another promise of the Messiah in the Old Testament that He's going to be born in Bethlehem. Verse 2, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me, to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago. In fact, so long ago, he says, they're from the days of eternity. This has been God's plan from before the foundation of the world. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor is born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, and he will arise, and he will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain, because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. And listen to verse 5. This one, this Messiah, He will be our peace. When the Assyrians invades our land, when He tramples on our citadels, then we will raise against Him seven shepherds and eight leaders of men. And He goes on to speak of prophecies concerning Assyria. But He says, this one who's to come in verse 5, He will be our peace. Because He's going to shepherd His flock 
in the strength of the Lord. This is what we heard in in Luke chapter 2 when um, I don't remember which one of the teenagers read it, but Luke chapter 2, verse 14. The angels bust out of heaven in verse 13. And it says, a multitude of the heavenly host. I wonder if all the angels emptied heaven to go see the birth of Jesus. To go see this moment when God became man. Because it says a multitude of the heavenly hosts were praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. The King of peace is coming into the world. The Prince of peace, the prophesied Prince of peace has come and all the angels bust out of heaven and they reveal it to these shepherds who are keeping watch over their flocks in a neighboring hill. And they tell him, you need to go look at that baby because he is Emmanuel, God with us. In fact, in Acts 10.36, the Word which He sent to the sons of Israel was preaching peace through Jesus Christ because He's Lord of all. And Paul in Romans 5.1 says, when we've been justified by faith, we have right now, present tense, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Paul says in Colossians 1.20 that he's come to reconcile all things having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him I say whether things in heaven or things on earth. You see, Jesus came to be born not just to live a perfect life on this earth as our example. That is part of it. He also came to die as our substitute. Isaiah spoke of it 700 years before. And He came to die in our place so that He could make peace between man and God. Why? Because God is holy. And God can't wink at sin. He can't sweep it under the rug. He can't just sort of turn a blind eye. He can't pretend it doesn't exist. His holy, righteous character demands perfect justice. And our sins can only be paid for one of two places. On us or on Christ. That's it. The Bible speaks, if it's placed on us, it's in hell forever. If it's on Christ, it was at the cross 2,000 years ago, where He made peace through the blood of His cross. And the wonderful thing about this is, this is a gift. It's received not by you cleaning yourself up. You could never get clean enough. It's not by you coming to church and doing all of these duties. It's simply by receiving the gift by faith, believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one. Believing He's Lord and King and bowing your knee to Him and saying, You have my life. Whatever you want, I'm yours. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life with this One who's the eternal Father and the Prince of Peace. Matthew's emphasis, We saw Matthew 18. Ryan read that for us this morning. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through His prophet. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel. Two things are emphasized in that passage. One, this child king is going to save His people from their sins. He says, Matthew one twenty two is what I'm looking at here. Sorry. I'll read it to you. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet 
Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And they shall call His name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. That's not the passage I wanted to go to. Because that's back to Isaiah 7. I was thinking of Isaiah 9-6 where it says, A son is given for us. You can turn back to Isaiah 9-6 if you want to. I was keying in on that passage, the, the phrase, for us, in Isaiah 9-6. He says, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us, or for us. This idea that He's given on our behalf. He's given for our benefits. This is what the New Testament says. Second uh, Corinthians 5.21, for example, God the Father made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us or on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Secondly, this Jesus is King. He's the Son of David. He's the Messiah. He's Savior. And when He says Emmanuel, God with us, when He says El Gabor, Mighty God in Isaiah 9.6, He's saying He's God. God with us. God incarnate. The Divine One He's God and anointed of God. This is why over in Luke, when the angel appears to Mary and she says, don't be afraid because the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for this reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. You see, it really wasn't a, a miraculous birth. It was a miraculous conception. And the reason it was a miraculous conception was it was the fulfillment of prophecy and it also was to fix a problem because God had cursed David's line. One of David's descendants, Jeconiah, the one who was reigning when Judah was taken into captivity, God said, you're never going to have a son be on the throne. Now how could God promise David that you'd always have a son on the throne and promise Jeconiah you're never going to have a son on the throne? It seems like a problem that can't be fixed. But see, the virgin birth fixes that problem. He fulfills his promise to Jeconiah because Joseph, who was a descendant of David as well, he wasn't the physical father of Jesus. He was the adopted father of Jesus. The Holy Spirit overshadows. It's a mystery. The Holy Spirit comes upon Mary. The power of the Most High overshadows her. And for this reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And Scripture is so precise. It's not like one of those Greek or Roman tales where the gods came down and got a woman pregnant. They knew about that. They, lived in, they knew about those kind of ideas. And Scripture is so careful to say that this is something miraculous. A conception that happened in the womb of Mary. And this child is holy. And is called the Son of God. That's why the angels can tell the shepherds in Luke 2.11, Today in the city of David, there's born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Christ who is God. And I think what we see throughout Isaiah when he says this, when he says that the Messiah is going to be a wonder of a counselor, He's going to give you wisdom that you need. He's going to be a mighty God. He's powerful to save. He's going to be an eternal Father. He's going to reign forever, so He's never going to change. And He's the Prince of Peace, and He's going to bring not only peace on the earth, He's going to bring peace between you and God. What Isaiah is saying is He is exactly what you need. 
The Messiah is exactly what each and every one of you need this morning. You need this Jesus. You can't have real life without Him. It would be a shame, wouldn't it, to go through Christmas season and see all the beauty and all the sentiment attached to it and not believe in the One who is our peace. The Lord Jesus Christ. Come to Him if you haven't. If you've not done that, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the person of the Son. The One who is the wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Put your faith in Him. Look at the last line of verse 7 if you're in Isaiah 9. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is the Old Testament way of saying the deliverance that God's going to bring, He's going to do it. It's going to be by grace. It's not going to be because we went out and did something valiant and we saved ourselves. It's not because we performed tasks to deliver ourselves. The zeal of the Lord of hosts is going to do it. He knew we couldn't deliver ourselves. And so He brought a deliverer. He's going to do it. He says, I'm going to do what's necessary for a Savior to be provided so that you and I could be rescued. And He did it when He sent His Son into the world. I will bring this child into the world and I will bring about your salvation. That's what God says. His name is wonderful. Father, thank You for Your Word this morning. Oh, I ask that You would give us a glimpse of who Jesus really is. Not what our culture says about Him. Not what historians say about Him. Not what we think. But Father, may we see Him for who He really is. He is not weak. He is not impotent. He is mighty and powerful. A warrior who is a wonder of a counselor who is a wise and eternal King and who brings peace, gives us everything that we want, everything that we would ever desire, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Jesus. As we celebrate His birth this Christmas, Father, may we be reminded of the great joy that it is. The angels brought glad tidings of great joy which are for all people. And may we rejoice. I know for some it's a heartbreaking time of year because of brokenness in families and death of loved ones. But Father, may You restore my brothers and sisters' joy to them in Christ. He's a wonder of a counselor. He's acquainted with grief. In fact, He's borne our griefs. He's carried them. Thank You for giving us Jesus. We love You. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.